Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. And on this morning's show, we have Joe Perilli and Brad Avery from Honeycomb Cargo, um, CEO and COO and co-founders. And we're going to talk a little bit about the transportation business, um, transporting hazardous materials, et cetera, and some new technology that they're going to share with us today. So I always start the show off by asking um, my guests, what are the, the trends in your industry or area of expertise that you think are really important for other CEOs to know about? So I will actually toss that over to you. What, what do you guys think uh, CEOs should know about, about the cargo business and, and your technology? Yeah, great question. First of all, thank you very much. We appreciate the time and the opportunity to be here. Um, this is Joe Pirelli and, of course, this Brad. This is Brad. Mm-hmm. Brad Avery. Um, yeah, interesting question. We think um, in, the, in the transportation of hazmat, um, we've, we've got an opportunity to really be disruptive. There is an existing infrastructure that's about 45 years old in terms of design and architecture. And we found that it's, it's um, exposing the environment and the communities along the rail line to some serious risk. Um, in probably most of the um, listening audience is, is not very familiar with the hazmat transport environment, but if you've followed the media in the last few years, there have been a number of horrendous disasters, sorry, occurring um, across the country and, and across the North American continent. Um, one in particular a couple of years ago in uh, Lac Magentic, Canada, in Quebec, um, took 47 lives. Was and that the big explosion? It was a huge explosion. Right. And it was really unfortunate. It was something that could be avoided. Um, and the net of it is that there are a number of tanker cars, 300,000 or more of these tanker cars traveling the rail line today, and they all have an inherent design flaw. And that design flaw is, if you look at, I'm, I'm going to use a bottle as an example. If you use um uh, a bottle as a single entity. Plastic bottle. Right, the yeah. plastic bottle, or in the case of these tanker cars, it's a 30,000-gallon metal vessel. Mm-hmm. And it's a single entity, meaning that when it crashes and it penetrates, 30,000 gallons are exposed. And when you're pulling hundreds of them, it's, it's millions of gallons. And if it's toxic and gets into the, oil, into the uh, air, into the water... It's extremely dangerous, obviously. If it's explosive, a flammable three liquid-like crude oil, it's, it's devastating. Huge explosions, loss of life, significant damage to the environment. So we looked at that, and um, as we were trying to solve that problem, we started thinking back about you know, ways that uh, other problems have been solved by thinking out of the box. And the net of it is we came up with a solution that's a distributed architecture. So rather than having 30,000 gallons in a single entity, we have a distributed architecture of multiple smaller elements in that same aggregate of 30,000 gallons in an intermodal design. So we've got it um, in boxes, if you will, that can be placed directly on a flatbed rail car. So today's technology so pumped. I'm assuming that's a honeycomb. That's the honeycomb concept. That's yeah. right. <laughs> so it's really a combination of three elements. There's a there's a distributed architecture in a cargo hold, and then there's a shock absorbing element that goes around it. So if you think about, um, so it, is this only good in uh, in rail situations, or is it good for other 
for um, other movement of cargo as a well. Hu- a huge uh, application well beyond. We originally started focusing on crude oil because that's what was driving um, uh, the attention in the media and it was a huge problem. But we realized quickly that it's any hazardous material, ethanol. Um, so companies like companies like um, Clorox or Georgia Pacific or Dow Chemical, anybody who's moving any kind of material that might be toxic or hazardous would be interested in something like this. Mm. Um, so not only the rail lines and, and the people who are actually moving the product, but the end users mm. or the producers of those solutions. So, Now, Brad, do you have a, a sense of what the decreased risk is? So what do you have a sense of, of if uh, companies that were transporting these hazardous materials were using this honeycomb um, structure instead of the single um, vessel structure, how many of these disasters or how much like how much less likely it is is it for an accident to happen? Well, yeah, we, we haven't reached proof of concept at this point, but based on some of the, I guess we've done our own tests, our own field tests, and based on those field tests, we have seen significant decreases. Um, so imagine, um, imagine that you have a case of, you know, we, we were talking about one, one bottled water, but imagine you had a case of bottled water and that would be considered a, a distributed architecture, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, instead of having one big, huge five gallon jug, right? Uh, and, and then imagine some sort of impact on that case of water. What happens to those vessels as you have that impact? They basically spread, correct? And so you might have uh, something that punctures maybe one, maybe two of those bottles, but it doesn't doesn't affect all of them. And, and as a matter of fact, some of the vessels themselves protect the other vessels because the force is shoving into those other vessels and pushing them out of the way, correct? So if, if you take that concept and, and apply it, uh, it basically protects, in, in my mind, it protects probably 90 to 95% of the cargo at that point. And that's a significant increase. When you're talking about one vessel, which you lose 30,000 gallons, and then where you could protect, you know, as much as 25 of that or more, uh, that's a significant increase. And imagine that, that, that that's a money savings, but that's also an environmental saving there, too. So where, where are you in the, the life cycle of this technology now? We're, we are at uh, proof of concept. So we're, we're kind of bootstrapping our way through. We've... Um, you know, we've got designs, um, several actually, that are available today, and we can build them uh, as quickly as well. We could start building them immediately, um, and we believe that the technology is going to continue to evolve as the customer base starts to come online, and then we start to focus on specific needs for, say, Dow Chemical, for example, versus Conoco Phillips. So, oil and gas um, folks might have a different uh, application, right? Mm-hmm. One of their one of their needs is reducing the pumping of the crude oil in and out of tanks. That will drive down operational cost. Um, and that occurs today is a lot of pumping in and out of tanks. In Dow Chemicals application, they're probably not pumping those materials in and out of a lot of tanks, but they're going to have significant interest in protecting um, the cargo through the transport process. So, um, so we have both of those elements coming into play. Right now we have three models available. Um, and three specific designs. Um, so we're moving from there. Mm-hmm. 
And so where are you in terms of actually launching launching the technology? I'm not sure I'm following the launching. So have question. you do you have any customers? From the, from uh, there, that's a pointed <laughs> question. <laughs> what we have is uh, we don't have any um, any uh, revenue producing customers at this point. What we have is we have some soft commitments from uh, large intermodal carriers, um, and we do have some interest in uh, from some railroad companies. Um, we have also shared some of our um, um, intellectual properties at a high level with some of the oil and gas community, and we're we're getting a lot of head nodding. Uh, we haven't seen any checks written yet. And so as you kind of think about the future of the business and, and where you expect things to go, um, like where, how are you thinking things are going to evolve, let's say, over the next year? What are your ma- major priorities over the next year? What's your, and for me as a, as a strategist, what's your strategy for the next year? Yeah, well, there are a couple of challenges. So, um, and, and I'll, I'll let you jump in whenever you want. Um, you know, some of them are regulatory, and we talked a little bit about that uh, earlier. Um, there's a regulatory environment that is... Um, uh, you know, significant in the transportation of hazardous material, as you can imagine, uh, especially given all of the accidents that we've seen in, in the last couple of years. So, so there's a lot of focus on that. Um, the good news is that that regulatory environment wants change. They know that they need change. So, so they're looking at, and they're hungry for innovation. So, so we're, we're engaged with those bodies, and that's the um, American Association of Railroads, or Association of American Railroads, sorry, uh, the Federal Railroad Administration, um, the PHMSA, which is the um, Pipeline and Hazardous Material Safety Administration, and these are parts of the DOT, Department of Transportation, um, and, and we're engaged with each of those groups um, to promote our technology and to get exposure for this innovation. And that's one of the keys. We have to, we have to be able to, um, have acceptance from a regulatory perspective. And then beyond that, we have to have strong partnerships. So we think the partnerships for us are going to be the intermodal carriers, the people who manage rail cars and truck lines, right? Because our product is going to go on those, uh, intermodal paths. Um, so, um, not only rail and road, but also marine, which means barges and air cargo, uh, our solutions are designed to fit on all of those different channels. So we know we need to have partnerships there. And then the direct relationships with companies like Dow Chemical, Georgia Pacific, Clorox, um, and all the number of oil companies that I, uh, mentioned earlier, ConocoPhillips, um, British Petroleum, Shell Oil, Anybody who's moving um, toxic material, we have to have those relationships. So we really, we really see three different approaches: regulatory, shipping companies, and then companies that are actually ship, you know, uh, producers of those products. And so, Brad, and, and as you're, you know, pulling all these relationships together, you know, kind of getting your, um, your powder, you know, getting your powder dry and getting ready to, to, you know, get the, get everything to explode. Because I imagine once you're you get that um, regulatory approval, you're going to have a, a lot of fairly big relationships coming through. How are you thinking about this, uh, this kind of interim period? You know, what are you guys doing as you're waiting uh, and waiting and waiting? Well, I think... Not with, waiting. <laughs> yeah. It, <laughs> We're not waiting. We are actively waiting. You know, yeah. um, anytime you are looking forward to something... You're doing it with with energy, right? And uh, and you're you're not sitting by and just uh, sitting on your hands. Uh, you're 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 doing things to uh, look ahead, beyond. Um, uh, basically, uh, in a nutshell, you know, we're we're looking at the possible challenges, 
that we could see beyond, you know, these initial relationships uh, that we we create and form. Um, but, you know, we're also continuing to design. You know, we're, we're, we haven't, you know, found a few designs and said, okay, that's it, we're done, we've, we've reached it. And, and there's, because there's so many different applications for our design, we have to continue to innovate and design, especially for all the market segments. So uh, there, there's a lot of work that has to be done there. Obviously, we have to socialize. We're continuing to socialize. Those relationships, you never know um, what one connection can do for your business, uh, things that may not, you know, they may not be obvious to you. You know, some people go, oh, if I had that relationship, boom, we'd take off. Um, you know, sometimes it, it comes in through the back door. You just never know those small relationships, those small steps, those are synergistic and, uh, and they move you forward. Um, and so you have to continue to work on those angles and, and really, uh, you have to continue to remain positive. You know, there are setbacks in life and there are setbacks in business, right? And, uh, and those things, you can use those as, as positive motivation. You can, you know, some people are effective negatively and, and, you know, they kind of take their shots and they sit on the sideline for a little while. Uh, or you can use the negative and, and you can use it as a positive and, and work around it. And, and really that's what successful businesses do. That's what successful people do. They take the, the negatives, the failures, and um, they find a way to, to, you know, succeed through those, find a way to do it. That's, yeah. And, and so if you were going to think about your, you know, top recommendations for, you know, persevering, you know, what would, what would they be? Well, uh, I'm a person of faith for one thing. So uh, everything that I do uh, hopefully is defined uh, by my faith. And so, um, you know, in, in faith, uh, obviously perseverance is, is something that, uh, is a common denominator in faith. Um, with the challenges in life, uh, I really rely on the strength that God gives me to get through. And so that, that's really kind of, uh, the power that I am drawing from each day, not just in business, but just in life and, and how I deal with my family, deal with friends. Uh, deal with relationships, and um, you know, I try to look at it from that perspective. Uh, so that that really is, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say that gives me a one up, but I, I feel like without without my faith, I might be f- pretty floundering in this life. I'd be walking around it, kind of in a cloud and, and grasping at straws. And that's a foundation. It's a firm foundation that allows me to uh, to to take on each day. Uh, with the right perspective. And so that's really where I come from. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's been a, a strong hypothesis for me that a lot of people in business and entrepreneurs are actually very faithful because it does take a lot of faithful in whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But um, it does take a lot of faith to mm-hmm. take risk and to sit in that gap between when, you know, the, the results haven't been produced and you're kind of there, you know, in the, in that gap, mm-hmm. um, believing that things are going to come through. And so, um, do you ever get frustrated though? Like, you know, oh, in the absolutely. gap waiting, you know, like, absolutely. okay. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a terrible waiter. Terrible. <laughs> and, and, you know, again, it goes back to active waiting. Um, some people believe, you know, uh, when it comes to finding out what God has for them next, you know, uh, some people believe they can wait on God. 
and that they shouldn't do anything while they're waiting, that, you know, eventually it'll happen. Some people believe that they should knock on doors and walk through those doors or try to walk through the doors and, and watch God slam them if he doesn't want you to go through that door. It depends. Um, I think it's a combination of both. I think in life, I think there are times when God tells us, hey, you need to move and then I'll show you. You need to take a step and I'll show you. I'll kind of shine a light on each step. I'm not going to give you more than that. I'm not going to show you what's in the future because uh, that might get you off track if you already know what the end result is. But I have a, a, a nice I have a nice path for you if you'll trust me. Um, and so uh, that's kind of uh, it, it's kind of a combination of both. Sometimes it is just waiting. You know, sometimes it requires just waiting on God and being patient, not necessarily being busy all the time and busying ourselves and trying to do something always with our with our time. Sometimes it is it, a combination of both. You know, I think um, I I feel strongly that I serve a very creative uh, God who who does things in his own way. So, you know, for for waiting, yes, I get frustrated. Um, sometimes I grow impatient. Um, but. The reality is, um, if if my life is grounded in faith, you know, then I, I have to trust God and I have to trust that he has a, a great plan. And so for us, this idea that Joe has with Honeycomb Cargo, we call it a God size idea. Um, and the reason being is because, just like he said, there is a design that's been around for 45 years and it hasn't been changed. And there are reasons for that. But. You mean the original kind of single unit? The single entity, yes. There are reasons for that, and and I won't go into those reasons because I don't know all of them, but it it, it has served for 45 years. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a time for a change and that there isn't a better way to do it. But in order for those changes to happen, there are big hurdles. And it's it's something that is quite larger than two guys, you know, two humble dudes can, can really handle. When it comes down to it, it's something that in my mind, that God would have to allow to happen. It would have to be his idea and his plan, and that's why we call it a God-sized idea. And so, um, you know, for us, we really see that this is bigger than us and that, you know, God is working in our lives and, and in our business, and he's opening doors and he's creating these these relationships, these connections. He's, he's given the idea to Joe, and, you know, I've partnered with him, because I see it as a God-sized idea and something that, um, you know, that, that is helpful for people, first of all, because it's protecting people. Um, you know, we, we love our common man. We love each other, and we want to serve each other, and we want to make life better for everybody. We want to protect everybody, and we think there's a, a great way to do business, and there's a great way to protect our environment that God's created. There's a great way to protect each other, and also there's a great way that that Joe's created that also is, is very cost savings for, and so it's a, it's a great business idea also because it's, uh, it's lucrative and it's going to save businesses a lot of money. Yeah. And we're doing this. So it's a beautiful idea and it's a God size idea. Yeah. And to, to me, it's also when you have those, those kinds of businesses that serve customers, you know, serve the environment and then also, you know, create a profit for, um, for the business as well. I mean, that's where you kind of get that, that sweet spot that makes, that makes business, you know, really kind of 
serve everybody. Absolutely. Um, it's kind of that, that mad magic that happens in business that doesn't happen anywhere else. And so, Joe, you were going to say something? No, I, I was just going to reiterate that we are simply shepherds, and it is a God-sized idea. Um, so... Right on. I, I agree completely. Yeah. yeah. And so d- how did you meet each other? And and obviously there have been a lot of fairly deep conversations that have happened between the, the two of you and you're from very different walks of life. Brad, you're um, a, a musician and, you know, band owner and, you know, Joe, you're a regular guy from Chicago. I'm a regular guy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's good. And we also happen to be neighbors. So That's that right. Was, that was one way. And to by the way, that. I'm a regular guy too. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, but how, how did you meet each other and, and, you know, come to, you know, the, the, the band guy ends up in a business that's doing, producing cargo, you know, cargo materials and things like that. How did, how did that happen? Well, we, like Joe we're, said, we're we, neighbors. Yeah, we are neighbors. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. just live down the street from each other. And uh, I don't know if you can tell from Joe's personality, but he's extremely outgoing. Uh, my personality, believe it or not, even though I was in the spotlight for, you know, many years of my life, uh, I'm very much an introvert. And I very much like to, you know, kind of be with my family and be to ourselves. Um, <laughs> I do like one-on-one. So we have a, you know, a, a great one-on-one relationship. But when I get in, actually, when I get in a, in a room where I had, have to work a room, so to speak, and shake hands, uh, it's almost debilitating for me. Uh, it's, it's very challenging. I, I call it kind of a, an energy sucker because I really have to get myself up to, to go out there and really, and go for it because I'm a lot better one on one because I am an introvert. But Joe is quite the opposite. Joe knows everybody and nobody is, is a stranger to Joe. Uh, and it's a beautiful gift from God, to be honest. Um, uh, just see how he interacts with everybody. He kind of brings everybody in our neighborhood together in our in our group, and we all, you know, when when there's you know gatherings and get togethers, we get together in his driveway, you know, and play cornhole and you know just hang out and eat food and and have fun and talk. And he's kind of that guy. He's like the connection point to all the neighbors and everything. And there are many neighbors I might not have ever met because of my you know my condition, I guess, if you want to call it, to being an introvert, you know, and I'm fine being, you know, in my it's, own little it's space. Not a, it's not an illness. It's not an illness. It's not. It feels like it, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, so of course Joe was going to, going to connect with me because he connects with everybody. And then through Joe, I've been able to connect with, with everybody in the neighborhood. So that's kind of how it started. But, you know, for me, I came off the road, uh, seven years ago and that was, it was actually very difficult. Um, uh, I started touring and traveling uh, professionally when I was a teenager, um, and I'm 44 now. Um, so a majority of my life was on the road. And anybody who's spent their life on the road, and, and Joe spent a lot of time on the road, that's for sure, as a, as a salesman. And um, When you spend your life on the road and then you come off the road, uh, you've got to find a new normal. Uh, because the road, especially being out there and being gone all the time, it, it's a completely different lifestyle. It's a completely different way to look at life. And uh, so that was a big challenge for me to come off the road. Uh, it was a blessing to get to be home. I have four girls and to be with those girls and watch them grow up instead of being gone all the time and missing everything. And my wife having to be a Sunday widow where she'd go to church alone, you know, because I was out, you know, playing uh, shows on the weekends and things. Um, 
it was a big challenge, you know, and then to integrate into, you know, industry and into, into business in, in a different realm f- from just being home all the time, big changes for me. Um, but I think with Joe, I think that connection is an easy connection. You know, it, it kind of, it helped me sort of bridge the gap between the two, you know, it took a while. But it's helped me kind of bridge the gap into, you know, a new normal. And uh, it's been a beautiful thing for me, that's for sure. And and so it, it sounds to me like, Brad, you, you chose Joe, not so much the technology, that it was more about um, knowing that you were going to be on a great team. Well, yeah, it's a relationship. You know what I mean? Um, when you're in a band, you know, and, and really anybody who's it, it, a band is a successful business. Uh, some of them are successful. Some of them aren't. There are a lot of bands who don't make some it. businesses are successful. Some businesses aren't. Absolutely. But the things, the challenges that businesses run into a lot of times, it's not because uh, they didn't create a great product that everybody wanted. A lot of times businesses implode and they implode because of you know difficulties in relationships. Uh, they implode because uh, there's, you know, there's there's these challenges um, that come with uh, just being involved with people day to day. Well, a band is kind of the melting pot of that, and, and it's that on 10. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, basically, you're married to, in our case, it was four other guys. There were five of us, and you're married to their families also. There's a tight relationship, and you're with these people more than you're with your, your wife and your kids. And, and then you throw, uh, you throw fame, you throw money, uh, you throw the rigors of being out on the road and maybe not necessarily being grounded all the time and having people serve you and things like that. You throw that into it and it can be, become a very crazy place. And that's why a lot of bands don't make it. A lot of them, you know, you hear about bands breaking up or they make it a lot of years, but there's always something going on between a couple of the members. They can't ever get along. You know, businesses are, are, are very much the same way. They're about relationships. And so me and Joe have a a great relationship with each other. We both believe in each other. We both have uh, have faith. Uh, we know this is bigger than us. And so that's really where it has to start, a successful relationship. And then we have something that we're passionate about. And so we can get behind that and trust each other and move forward and hopefully accomplish something. And and for your part, Joe, when you were looking, you know, to to expand your team, and how did you, you know, what was it that you saw in Brad that made you think that he was going to be a great team member for you? Yeah, great question. So, uh, well, obviously, we already had an existing relationship, so it was natural for me to share. Yeah, but, but seeing and, and cooking out with somebody is very different than having them as your COO. Well, we play some golf together, so, yeah. you know, golf can do that, too. So, so we, yeah, so we found a lot of common ground, um, not necessarily on the golf course, but we, <laughs> we found a lot of common ground just through our relationship and, uh, and our friendship. And so... You know, when, when the idea came, um, I had to share it with somebody. So initially, you share it with friends and family, right? Uh, which is what I did. And some people would would be, you know, slightly negative and say, "Yeah, well, you can't do that because you know, for give you a thousand reasons, right?" And other people might say, "That's interesting. Let's 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 explore that a little bit further." And he was one of those guys who said, "Hey, that's interesting. Let's explore it a little bit further." And so we did. And just through that natural dialogue, you know, it evolved. And, and then we realized that it was a God-sized idea. It was much bigger than us. And we needed to attract really smart people um, who are already either in the industry or, or, 
working around the industry, and we did that. So, and ironically, some of them were also neighbors. Um, so we found somebody in the logistics industry living right next door to me, uh, John Godfrey, and you can find his name on our website. Um, we found uh, Eric Robley, who works in the rail car manufacturing process just down the street, same neighborhood. Um, we found a gentleman in Texas who ran a short line railroad system who was ready for a career change. Um, and that was just by circumstance or, or maybe something more. Something right? more. Um, and, and, and my nephew, who was relocating from Chicago to Atlanta, happened to be an IT expert. And we needed somebody like that. So the team, everything just came together. We're just connecting the dots is what's happening. Um, so the relationships are obviously a key for sure. Um, and we think that we have the right people. We think they have the right temperament. Um, and hopefully we have the right solution and with, we can be good shepherds. Great. And so as you think about building, building your team, you know, what are the, the core things that you're, you're looking for? How would you, so, you know, one question I could also ask is how would you characterize your company's culture? You know, I think that, I think the culture is pretty wide open. Um, we, we all have mutual respect for each other. First of all, um, we, we believe that everybody has a, um, a contribution to make. Um, some people are good at certain things and not so good at others. And we recognize that, um, so we can't all, you know, be experts at everything. So we, we want to rely on the things that, um, John might be good at or Eric might be good at and, and let them do those things and let them make those contributions. And then um, we're also, because we're a small company, we all have to wear many hats. So the other nice thing about the culture is um, people are ready to jump in and willing to jump in and fill a gap um, or take on a challenge that may be something that they didn't think that they could do well, and then they surprise themselves. So that's the nature, I think, of a startup. Um, so we have that kind of a relationship on the team, um, and we want to continue to promote that. Mm. So as you think about, you know, the, the next year or so in, in, the, in the growth of the company, um, you know, I am a strategist. So I help companies do business planning and strategic planning and think about think about their their growth. Where are you in the in the you know, funding funding process and uh, what kind of growth do you expect? Like, you know, if you look at the market, how much market share do you think you can capture and yeah, Tell great, us a little bit about great what question. the market dynamics. So we, of course, uh, and we're, we're learning a lot, right? So we have um, a business model, and we started with a business model, right? And and you have to understand, well, who's your competition, right? Uh, how, how are they doing it? Um, what is their market cap look like or what does the market look like in general um, yes 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 how can, all great how, how can you how can you address that market differently and what are the costs going to be for you to do that and what kind of margin can you eke out of that process and and will that result in a successful business so we we ran through all those models and and the reality is that there That's are really about, great there are about three hundred thousand um, dot 111, 1232, and 117 tanker cars, these single entity tanker cars on the rail lines today. How much does your solution cost? Those products go between $180,000 and $220,000 per car. And 90,000 of this those. This is yours or the competition? No, they're theirs. Okay. So, so they're building rail cars. They're building uh, a vessel that has 30,000 gallons with wheels on it that rides along the rail. Okay. Um, there are 300,000 of those on the, on the rails today. 
90,000 of those are, are going to be retired by 2017 because of regulatory changes. And those regulatory changes are being driven by these disasters that are occurring. So we see uh, a sizable market. Our solution is based on containers that are going to go on flatbed rail cars, so we don't have to build a rail car. What we're building are intermodal solutions that go on the existing infrastructure. So our solutions are significantly lower in cost, uh, significantly lower in terms of price to the to the market. And I see a calculator. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, so I was going to say, so, you know, the 100,000 times um, 300,000 cars is like $35 billion. It's a huge market. Right. It's right. huge. So we think that just to get small uh, 1%, if we got 1% of the market, we could we could really grow rapidly. And how much is your solution relative to the others? It depends on the model, but we have models that are ranging from, um, what do we have, $11,000 per cargo hold. And remember, we have to have multiple cargo holds to equal the equivalent of one thirty thousand gallon tanker. Um, so, um, so we have cargo holds that are $11,000 and we have some that are $22,000. So it depends on the model and the application. Um, but we're going to be significantly lower than the competition. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to drive the operational costs down significantly, especially for the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. So how much of the, how much of the market do you, do you think that you can capture? Yeah. Um, I, I think it depends on who we partner with and how successful we are early. Um, there are some huge companies out there that would either love to crush us or hopefully embrace us and make us part of their solution. And I think that's the smarter path for them because of the regulatory uh, pressures that are coming. Uh, again, 45-year-old inherent design flaw in, in 300,000 tanker cars today, somebody has to do something different. So we're doing something different. Um, the question is, you know, can we do it with the right partner? We're looking for those partners. Um, we think we know who they are, um, and it's just a question of working through the cycles, we, we believe. And so I'm assuming that you have a patent for your technology and, and all that good stuff. We have patent pending. Um, the patent process is interesting, and that's one of the things that we've learned. Um, as of last year, or prior to last year, in order to protect an idea through the patent process, you had to go through the entire process and, and, and receive a patent number and a stamp. As of last year, there's a patent pending process. So now what you have to do is you have to apply for a patent. They have to acknowledge that you've applied for it and accept that acknowledgement. And then they stamp it patent pending. At that point, nobody can get in front of you from that date and time stamp uh, with your idea. They can come with a different idea, of course. Um, but so we are protected by our patent pending status. Um, the way that it works is uh, you have 12 months to complete that process. So we are about two and a half to three months into the patent pending process. So mm -hmm. we, we're, you asked earlier, what are some of the other things that you do while you're waiting for regulatory approval? Well, there's a lot to do. <laughs> That's one of them. Great. Um, so back to, back to your strategy and, you know, this, you know, $35 billion market, um, you're looking at, sounds to me like you're, you're, in terms of your strategy, you're mainly looking at um, strategic partnerships, et cetera, et cetera. Are you going to build a sales force at all? Uh, most likely, yeah. I, I, I think we will. I mean, I, we have to address the, um, the shipping companies and we have to address the manufacturers of these products. So it's going to take more than five of us. Um, <laughs> Certainly. You know, yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. 
And um, are you finding that, uh, you know, the Atlanta Atlanta um, ecosystem has been favorable to you in terms of, you know, supporting new technologies? I know that it's been a lot of talk about Atlanta Tech Village and, and the technology scene in Atlanta. Are you finding that, that it has been particularly supportive of you? Um, I, you know, frankly, I mean, I love Atlanta. Um, I, I don't, I think we could have done this from anywhere, frankly. And, and, and we may have actually had, um, a little easier time, um, getting to the right audience if we were in the epicenter of the oil and gas industry, for example, in Houston, because, you know, the oil and gas industry is, is, um, is being impacted by these disasters. Um, or if we were in DC, uh, because the regulatory uh, uh, folks are all up in D.C. Or if we were in, say, Chicago, my hometown, because Chicago is a major hub for rail transport and Chicago and other communities like them are at great risk. So, um, you know, we're reaching out to all of those um, uh, communities. Um, being in Atlanta, in our case, hasn't hurt us, but I don't think it's necessarily um, been a... Um, a, a, a difference maker for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, the great thing about being in Atlanta and I, and I kind of relate things back to my, my previous experience. You know, I grew up in the Midwest and I played, I traveled in bands from the Midwest for the first part of my career as a teenager and uh, in my young twenties before I uh, went to engineering school. Um, and there was a point where my location affected, you know, my opportunity. Um, but I had the choice where I could go to the major music cities and try to expand, you know. So at that point, it would have been New York or L.A. or Nashville. But uh, this was back in, you know, the early 90s where Atlanta's music scene was was quite huge it was booming and i could go to those really big cities and get swallowed up you know and as an introvert that was kind of scary to me but i thought i saw atlanta as you know it's a great location it's a great place to go and and try something and maybe it's a safer environment for me and besides that i had relationships here I had some other friends here who were musicians who were doing something. And so I kind of look at it the same way. I think for us, I think Atlanta is a great market because uh, it's untapped in, 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 I guess, in this, uh, in this new technology that we're talking about. There are plenty of large companies here who would um, obviously benefit from what we're doing. And, uh, and of course we would, we would benefit from that symbian relationship too. So I see it as a, as a, a great place to be and a great place to build this brand. And, uh, obviously it's a, it's a great place to travel from and do business also. Mm-hmm. And so Joe, I asked you uh, a couple of questions ago about capitalization, um, mm-hmm. when you're talking about strategy and your, your plan for growth. Um, so talk to me about your capitalization. Um, uh, could you be more specific so you know I, I imagine that you know this that that kind of growth the, yeah. the kind of growth you're looking for um yeah. typically is pretty capital intensive ah, okay I, you, you're trying to get to the the essence of what do we think it's going to take for us to to get there yeah and where okay. are you now yeah so um well so it's, it's interesting because initially when we first started talking about this before we even did a business plan and crunched any numbers we just came 
out of the blue and said, we think we're going to need at least $2 million to go from proof of concept to prototype, go through third-party testing and evaluation, and address the regulatory bodies and be successful. Um, and then as we started going through the business models and crunching numbers and realizing, okay, first we have to understand what our cost of goods are and and all of those components and then what is what is our overhead cost going to be and then there's a, a number of other factors and, and, and third-party testing and all of that um we came to the realization that it was <laughs> going to be more than two million dollars that we would need uh, to get us off the ground this is so, the reason why you do a business plan exactly Absolutely. right so you know we were naive at the beginning but that's okay um and not, now we have a, a much better sense so we we think and we we don't have a hard number but we think it's going to be more like I don't know, six to ten million dollars mm -hmm. to get us through um, to to the point of success, and you know, so we we expect that to be a three to five year proving ground, right? We we don't expect you know three months and you know we're on the beach. We we know there's a lot of hard work um, and a lot of dedication. Um, there's going to be a lot of trust um, from the investment community, but we think we have a really compelling business plan. And a great idea and the right skills to make it happen. And we're, and we're always looking for uh, additional people to, you know, bring to the team. Um, w uh, my expectation is that when we get the investment community a little bit closer, they may want to, um, insert a CFO. That's a, that's not an uncommon practice, right? And, and that's okay. We're okay with that. Um, we, we have some people in mind that, that we think can help guide us on, in, in that respect. Um, beyond us, we're, we're doing that now. Um, but we're open to that. So, but but I think somewhere between six to ten is is what we think we need um, in order to be successful and and really move this thing forward. Mm -hmm. And when do you think that you're going to get to the point where you are actually um, producing? And and are you going to manufacture in the United States? Where is it going to be manufactured? Well, we would love to manufacture in the United States. Um, you know, again, that that all comes down to how the numbers play out. Uh, I'm a big believer in 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 you know keeping jobs here. Obviously, um, I don't see a lot of point in 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 pulling it from say china for example or, or or mexico unless unless there's a compelling reason so we would love to keep the jobs here um we think it's easier to control here we're, we're not talking about um you know technology that's going to be built by in, in sweatshops right so uh this is pretty basic straight straightforward stuff once you get through um and and a non-disclosure agreement and look closely at what we're doing um, you can see that um, the skill set that we need to build this is right here at home. Mm -hmm. And and when do you expect that you're going to actually start go to go to production? Well, that's a great question because we, we were talking about you know the bootstrap process. Um, so there are a couple of uh, avenues that we're pursuing aside from angel investors. Um, we're also pursuing potential grant opportunities. Now we realize that we can't rely on a grant. Um, but but grants are interesting because of the regulatory environment. And the regulatory environment is, as I said earlier, uh, has a huge appetite for innovation. And we have shared, I can't I can't um, say any names um, because I, I promised that I wouldn't, but uh, we have shared um, our concept with some regulatory people who have the ability to not only um, facilitate and and kind of wave the flag for us that this is an innovative solution that that they need to consider uh, but they also have access to grant money and and we've had more than one conversation around the idea that um 
you know, grant money is not beyond the realm of possibility. So we think grant money might be helpful, and that might help uh, accelerate it. Um, but we're prepared um, to bootstrap it if we have to. Um, and, and the bootstrap process, of course, means self-funded, which is what we're doing so far. Um, and it takes a bit longer. Um, but we're committed to that. So the question of when, I don't know, what, what would you say? Brad? Uh, <laughs> when? Yeah. Uh, I ask God that all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a, it's a great question. I feel like, you know, I think that we will have something from a, a prototype standpoint, obviously within the next six to eight months. Um, that's, that's my, my thought process. Yeah. I think actually something that, uh, is, used uh it has been proven or is being proven by you know a, a partner company mm-hmm. i'm feeling like maybe 18 months to 24 months i feel like we'll be there so yeah i, I i'd like to say that before the end of the calendar year we're going to have <laughs> we're going to have at least you know prototype that we can we can get, get large scale third party testing done but you know who knows mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah great mm-hmm. well um thank you guys so much for coming in and sharing a little bit about honeycomb cargo um any closing thoughts about, you know, anything coming up that you'd like for listeners to know about before we wrap up? Now, um, there are a number of events in the industry. Um, and, and, and when I say the industry, I mean the shipping industry, in particular the intermodal industry. And um, again, if, if people aren't focused on, on shipping, um, they probably don't realize it. But intermodal, which is basically the concept of taking a a container and moving it from one, a truck, for example, to a rail or moving it from a rail to a, a, a marine vessel. Um, that segment of the shipping industry is growing phenomenally. Um, and, and our economy is still sputtering and struggling. So as the economy continues to improve and intermodal continues to go, I, I think so will go Honeycomb Cargo. Um, I hope that's the case. So we're focusing on, um, you know, industry events around the shipping communities around hazmat specifically um and intermodal specifically um and there are a number of events coming all of those are listed on our website uh which is www.honeycombcargo.com way to go <laughs> i thought i'd plug that while i'm here very good. um and there's a number of other um uh elements in on our website that folks should uh poke around and visit all right. Well, thank you so much, Joe and Brad, for joining me this morning. You guys are also on, on LinkedIn and Twitter. So mm-hmm. um, I hope uh, you have a great rest of the morning and good luck. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thanks for your time. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at AnonaEnterprises.com.